Hello and welcome to Valina's talk on the disruption of global supply chains. My guest today is Ross Kennedy, who is the founder of Fortis Analysis, a US-based logistics and supply chain advisory team that focuses tightly on risk management and operations at the intersection of geopolitics and supply chains. His unique blend of operations, sales, and strategic planning allows him to provide creative, agile solutions for his public and private sector clients. Ross, welcome to this uh, digital conversation. Thank you, Valina. Happy to be here. Now, this is actually our second uh, digital yes. talk on the disruption of the global supply chains. And I would like to start with a question dedicated to the United States. What's mm -hmm. causing America's massive supply chain disruptions in general, uh, given your expertise on the topic? Yeah, so uh, we talked a little bit the last time I was on about how the United States' particular supply chain and logistics model uh, for most things is very import intensive. Uh, we imported at a rate that, that is, you know, orders of magnitude ahead of our exports. Uh, all the ships coming in, of course, are full. All the ships going back out, historically, by and large, have been, you know, 30 to 50% full of products um, by weight. But in terms of value, really, the United States, as far as physical things we export, uh, doesn't have a lot of uh, financial or, or commodity value or, uh, you know, on the order of say uh, a single container, of, you know, TVs may have an awful lot more value uh, as opposed to a container maybe of DDGs, you know, distillers, dried grains. So that was, that was the norm for a long time. And, and the carriers, the ocean carriers balanced, uh, they were losing money, you know, for, for the most part for many, many years. And they had these brief periods where they'd make money, but for the most part, um, it, it's, a, it's always a balancing act for them of how little money do we want to lose on this particular service string or this voyage. And then when COVID hit in China and, 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 and really began to disrupt things there in 2020, uh, given the amount of work that I've done you know, in China and, and, and working with Chinese companies, uh, I sensed pretty quickly that there would be a V-shaped recovery that, that as an export, more or less an export dependent economy, they would try to get their exports back online as fast as they could. Uh, and that's exactly what they did. Uh, the timing of that was interesting um, or, or really a perfect storm in that uh, the ocean carriers uh, very quickly idled or laid down a lot of their capacity because they had no idea what the risk was going to be. So they pulled as much capacity out as, as they could. Uh, the factories came back online in China much more quickly than the ocean carriers could get capacity back in. And then we had the stimulus, you know, uh, I think the first round of stimulus went out in, in, in late late March, early April uh, of 2020, uh, and people started buying things. We were locked down. We couldn't go to restaurants. We couldn't go to you know, baseball games anymore or even go golfing. Uh, so we sat at home and we bought things, right? And so just the, the amount of things that needed to be shipped over exploded very, very quickly uh, as we came out of COVID and the Lunar New Year in 2020. And it, it was a capacity constraint that we never could really unwind. The ocean carriers weren't ready for that. Um, they, they were slow to put capacity back in because they didn't know if this would be just sort of a temporary blip. Uh, but by the end of 2020, it was very, very clear that whatever uh, vessel delays we were having, you know, with 20, 30, 40 ships backing up off the coast of Los Angeles, um, it, it was obvious that that wasn't going to get cleared up anytime soon and that it would take really a major 
demand disruption in the United States to get to a point where the flow of cargo from China slowed down enough that the uh, we'd be able to clear the backlog of vessels and maybe try to get back to good. Uh, so I said very early on, this was something that was going to have a multi-year tail uh, that was going to be uh, wildly disruptive to the United States for a long time. But on the other end of that is China. And so if our ports are backlogged and Chinese exporters can't get their product out despite demand for it, that's going to have numerous knock-on effects there as well. So that's, you know, kind of in a nutshell how we got to this point where once, once the water was backed up behind the dam, it's very, very hard to get it back out without causing a flood that just destroys everything. So we find ourselves now in, in you know, March of 2022, we still have tons of vessels idled off, off the coast of California. Now we're coming into the, you know, just three months from now is going to be potentially the sunset of the labor agreement between the Longshoremen's Union on the West Coast. Uh, that's for both the U.S. and for Canada. Uh, and, and their agreement with Pacific Maritime Association, which represents the carriers, the ports, and the terminals. And so the longshoremen have dug their heels in on certain issues. The PMA has dug its heels in on certain issues. And a couple of these are existential. Uh, to both in some way, like the use of the increasing use of automation inside the ports that, that may displace human labor. So, so if now we're at a point where we're, we're backed up, things have slowed out of China uh, because of the COVID lockdowns in Shenzhen, uh, parts of lockdowns that, that have affected the ports of Shanghai, Ningbo, Qingdao. Uh, so major economic regions of China have been disrupted pretty severely over the last month with these additional uh, lockdowns and then all the you know the rolling energy lockdowns uh, you know in 2021. Even with all of that happening, we're just now beginning to kind of eat through the backflow of vessels and cargo that's been trying to get into the United States for two years. And right as maybe we begin to see some real daylight and progress made on that, we're going to get to the end of June. And if there is no labor agreement complete by then, then the workers are going to strike at, at you know basically midnight on you know July 1st. And if they strike, that shuts down the entire West Coast uh, uh, port apparatus and not just a few container ports. The longshoremen are at all of the smaller ports, too. You know, they've got labor agreements with every major port and terminal on the West Coast in Canada and in the United States. So even both vessels will shut down. The ability to stow vessels coming in or de-stow vessels coming in, stow vessels going out that have things like grain or timber products or whatever it may be on them uh, off the West Coast. All of that now is going to have to either go the long way through the Indian Ocean into the Suez Canal, and then you know come out the Mediterranean into the Atlantic and hit East Coast ports, which is quite a long ways around, uh, or it's gonna have to try to get through the Panama Canal. And with the Panama Canal, we're gonna have a completely separate issue of the Panama Canal can only lock 40 vessels a day and pass them through. So it's gonna very quickly turn into a parking lot when you've got 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 vessels trying to pass and transit each side to get between Asia and the, you know, Asia and the North America. Uh, and that's one of those problems that's just going to keep enduring uh, even after, you know, whatever the lockout may be or walkout, wherever that ends, that strikes. So um, coming into, you know, we're going to pull into the tail end of 2022 with uh, a lot of companies looking at bankruptcy, consolidation, whatever it may be. Um, we've seen and, and a lot of people have had massive, uh, you know, fears coming up about availability of things like fertilizer uh, for the United States agriculture economy. Uh, you know, what is it, what are the energy markets going to do? So a lot of these questions are still very up in the air. Uh, I've got some ideas on what may happen, but that doesn't certainly mean I'm right. Um, but what we do have to take a look at here is that whatever promises are being made, whatever anybody says about, oh, this is going to get fixed or that going to get fixed. It, it's 
not going to get fixed. It's, it's simply a mess that's too big. It's a mess that's too big and it's just going to take time to unwind. Even if all of the causal factors stop right now and we're just in cleanup mode, it's going to take months to do that. But I think as we're seeing the rate of, you know, the rate of change happening now with this, this global sort of failure cascade, we're in a global disruption. Uh, if anything, th those trends of disruption and chaos are accelerating uh, as opposed to decelerating or calming down. Last time we already addressed the issue of the interconnectedness of the global system. And it has very much to do, of course, with global supply chains, which are to be seen as the blood vessels of these globalized uh, socioeconomic networks, right? And we actually addressed also the issue of the significance of global choke points. In fact, before the mega ship ever given actually ran aground and blocked the Suez Canal, and we all uh, saw what happened afterwards. Uh, so, in a sense, I want us to go um, to uh, Asia for a moment and to look at the global supply chain's disruption from a Chinese point of view. You already addressed some of the issues like the COVID zero uh, policy, which obviously is uh, putting China in a very difficult position, uh, but it also exposed, uh, I mean, the pandemic exposed also the dependence on Chinese supply chains in general. So I would like to hear your opinion also on the future of uh, supply chains when it comes to reconfigurations. Some of the countries like, for instance, Japan, uh, but also United States and other Western partners already started thinking of reconfiguration away from China. Do you see that this is realistic? You also mentioned that this is a very you know, complex um, process. Uh, how long would such reconfiguration take? And then in addition to this, I would like to ask you the question, how do you um, look at Chinese efforts to also reconfigure. So this kind of a decoupling game is being played simultaneously by both the United States and China. What's your view on that? Specifically when it comes to terrestrial connectivity that China has been pushing uh, in regions such as Central Asia, South Asia. Now we also uh, observed what happened with uh, the visit of the Chinese foreign minister in Afghanistan, where the decision was, uh, or let's say the proposal was made to incorporate Afghanistan into the China-Pakistan economic corridor. So how do you, do you, do you see this as a kind of an effort by China to reconfigure also away from Western controlled or US controlled, specifically maritime, of course, sea lines. And given that around 80% of um, world trade is conducted via this sea lines, the sea routes. Do you see Chinese efforts to actually move away also uh, by creating terrestrial connectivity? So I would like very much to hear your opinion on that. Yeah, of course. Um, so, you know, with, with, regard to, with regard to China's attentions, it's been pretty obvious since 2013 where whatever they were saying about Belt and Road or, you know, the, the new Maritime Silk Road, and, and then it became one Belt, one Road, and now we just call it Belt and Road. Um, whatever else they were saying about that, it was very, very clear that they were attempting to do two things. They were, one, attempting to build alliances through 
uh, resource extraction, manufacturing, and uh, and bilateral trade between China and then all of these individual countries that are uh, part of Belt and Road and, and agree uh, to, to you know to to partner up on something. Uh, but you're also seeing uh, connectivity via uh, the physical assets to move them. In a lot of cases, the uh, you know for example, if you wanted to get uh, if, you know China wanted to get natural gas or resources, you know, access to natural gas in Central Asia, you know, historically, the only way to do that had been to, to build pipelines uh, or to take a very, very long way around the world to get to it. And so what we saw is pipelines. But then on the back of that, what you see is the development of, well, if natural gas is moving one way, why can't physical goods that that natural gas is a part of fueling factories and keeping homes warm and whatever it may be, if that natural gas is going to go one way, why can't intermediate and finished goods go back the other way? And so you started to see this, this concept uh, emerge in the early part of the last decade of why don't we build this, uh, this, this massive you know, Eurasian rail corridor between China and Europe, and then it's going to flow through all these countries and and, um, you know, sort of as a trunk, if you will, as a trunk railway, and then with numerous offshoots into various parts of, of Central Asia and, and, uh, and Russia and elsewhere as it, you know, as it moves through. And so they've done that, that those, uh, that, that rail system is up and running, it's moving. Uh, and, and really, for the first time, you saw the Pacific Ocean uh, connected to the Atlantic Ocean via rail. And, it, and it's such a massive thing. I don't think Mackinder, you know, back in the early part of the 20th century could have figured that the Great Island uh, was in fact going to be able to be, you know, traversed by rail. Um, so it's, it, it really is a, from a non-political perspective, of course, I, I probably fall into the more antagonistic camp in, as far as how U.S.-China relations are, but uh, certainly from a logistics and, and from a, just a sheer scale of infrastructure project, uh, it's a phenomenal achievement to, to have seen. And now when you talk about the Maritime Silk Road or, you know, what some people have called the String of Pearls, this is where China has been investing very deeply into relationships and partnerships and infrastructure at various major port cities all along uh, the Pacific Ocean, all along the Indian Ocean, all along through, uh, you know, the various seas and up into the Mediterranean uh, and even into the, you know, even into the Atlantic now. You have a series of ports that are either directly Chinese owned and operated uh, or were built by the Chinese in some way operated by the Chinese. Uh, or China, you know, I say the Chinese, I mean, of course, Chinese entities, whether they're linked to um, you know, state owned enterprises or, or to the CCP, but, but Chinese owned companies. Um, and now China has the ability, both from a naval and from a commercial perspective, to be able to essentially hop their way from port to port to port. Uh, and be able to conduct trade there, or in the case of potentially a conflict, uh, potentially coerce those countries into allowing those ports uh, where possible to be used as, uh, you know, resupply, replenishment points, um, you know, for naval assets. So they've got all of this here, and it's all done under the rubric of trade. I mean, the, the naval base at Djibouti that, that China built was its first foreign naval base. Um, but up until that point, you'd already seen them investing, you know, widely into various uh, ports all along the Indian Ocean, the port of Gadar. Uh, they have a very strong relationship uh, with one of the ports, um, you know, a couple of the ports in the Mediterranean, for example, like Piraeus in Greece. So we had already seen that effort done before they ever even stepped out and built a naval base. But it's a very, when we step all the way back and look at it from the beginning of the timeline, there's a very clear effort between China to connect itself on a commercial level, not just a financial, not just through threat of military force, which is kind of the old way of getting people to agree with you is, hey, we're going to 
you know, we're bigger, badder bullies, so you need to be nice to us, which was sort of the Soviet way. We'll invade you if you don't work with us. Um, China has gotten a little more savvy about that and said, look, we'd rather be friends and trade and commerce as long as you know your place and respect it and respect that you are not the dominant party in this relationship. Uh, and where that has failed, then they've gotten a little bit more aggressive with maybe some of these wolf warrior diplomacy concepts or uh, gray zone, cyber espionage, things like that. And what you've seen then is a coalition of countries that have made that bargain to say, you know, whatever our historical uh, issues may have been or lack of history between our countries, whatever it may be, uh, China is the big bad wolf in our backyard. And so we're going we're gonna to make deals with him. And uh, you've also seen China be very uh, non-selective in a lot of ways about who they do business with commercially. Uh, as a way of helping those countries avoid sanctions, Iran being a perfect example uh, of a country that was so heavily sanctioned by the world that um, by and large, it, it, it could have pretty rapidly collapsed the regime if, if Iran hadn't been able to get its energy assets out. Uh, and, and China stepped up and was just behind and continues to be uh, you know, far and away the number one partner to Iran on uh, putting money back into the regime's pockets there and, and helping them dodge sanctions. And that works for Iran and it works for China because, you know, is the world really going to sanction China at any, even attempt to sanction China at any scale of what we've seen with Iran or maybe Russia to a lesser degree lately? Uh, no, they won't. And, and so those countries know that they've got somebody that's willing to, uh, that, that has a need for a lot of resources, that has uh, a lot of money available to them to pay and help these countries stay afloat, these regimes stay afloat. And, and, it helps the, and it helps these countries stay somewhat protected from uh, the Western, westernized financial order, where we do have, the dollar is the global reserve currency, the euro remains a very strong currency of trade in most of the world as well. And so we have these, you know, these nations that back these currencies that are willing to utilize the financial systems against uh, hostile regimes or against uh, you know, regimes that engage in genocide, but we only do it to a point. Right. We'll, we'll put some sanctions on Iran. We'll put some sanctions on Russia. Uh, we're going to tread a lot more lightly when it comes to China. The trade war is a little bit. We've got the Uyghur Force Labor Prevention Act, where these are very specific targeted. But as far as wide reaching, um, as far as wide reaching sanctions or wide reaching attempts for us in the West to under undermine this this new uh, geoeconomic and geopolitical order that China has built in Eurasia, um, I, I don't think. I, it's irrelevant to us at some degree from a real politics standpoint. It's irrelevant to us that China is just as guilty of engaging in genocide uh, against numerous ethnic and religious minorities uh, as, you know, to those same politicians that are saying that Russia's engaging in, you know, genocide or Russia's engaging in a war of hostility. We're not treating those two things, which are both extremely evil, extremely immoral, uh, violates all you know, ethical and moral underpinnings that, that we claim to profess in the West. Uh, but we're willing to some degree to push back against Iran or Russia to a much less degree. We're willing to push back against the same sort of things that, uh, that China engages in. And that is because China made this decision a long time before we ever realized they had that the long-term future of the world was going to be dictated by what China chooses to do, not what United States and our alliances choose to do. And um, so we're now in a position because we are so heavily co-opted, particularly in the United States, as 
bad as it is in Canada, as bad as it is in South America, as bad as it is in Europe and Africa and the Middle East, where you have Chinese influence, the United States in particular is for the last 30 years become so ate up with individuals, entities, politicians, companies, universities, whatever it may be, who are so infiltrated with people who out of economic interest or in a few cases, maybe ideological, but mainly economic interests uh, are convinced that A, this bifurcation is not happening. B, to the extent that it is happening, it's the West's fault. And C, that China doesn't really actually mean us harm. They just want to make a lot of money and they're maybe being a little bit of bullies to leverage themselves for that. And that's not at all what's happening. Um, but the biggest battle we have to fight here in the U.S. in particular is understanding how commercial relationships between the U.S. and China, between West and the new Chinese sphere of influence, uh, it, it is commercial relationship, not violence, not threats of force, not ballistic missiles and who's got however many ships. But at the end of the day, it comes down to how much are we able to understand that the decision has already been made for us, that, that the world is going to decouple at some pretty significant level, uh, that there will be two hemispheric sort of alliances that, that you know, are forced to, to emerge from this. And the last thing about that is, is that China is doing this, Russia and Iran and others are falling in line behind it because they know that at the most fundamental level, the West is not as ready to tackle that challenge uh, across a whole domain uh, of factors and, and supply chain, uh, you know, elements, uh, particularly that of like raw materials, uh, resources, our ability to access large quantities of uh, mining, refining, intermediate manufacturing, final manufacturing of a lot of things that the world really needs. Uh, we have awoken to that reality in the U.S. You're seeing a lot of uh, very positive, significant efforts being made by both Democrats and Republicans, especially around things like semiconductors, where Arizona has stepped up and, and new fabrications are being, you know, new fabs and foundries are being built uh, in, you know, in the state of Ohio, which I've been reliably assured by some people doesn't exist. Uh, the, uh, we've got, I forget how big the plant is, but a fairly large uh, production facility for Intel is coming online in the Columbus, Ohio area. So even on that issue, I look at that and I say, it's fantastic. We're, we're, we're reshoring R&D, we're reshoring manufacturing of some of these critical things. But then I look at what the components of next generation semiconductors look like, and you have just an entire enormous range of fairly rare materials, not necessarily rare earths, uh, but rare materials that maybe only come from a few places or have to be completely synthetically manufactured via other materials and compounds. And we're not ready for that. You know, it's, it's China is enormously hegemonic when it comes to like aluminum manufacturing, for example, whereas that used to be a very strong point of, of Europe and the United States and, and Russia. Now you've seen China emerge as the, as the global superpower on aluminum production. Well, that matters because bauxite, which is the raw material that becomes aluminum, is refined into alumina. And then alumina is that intermediate resource that becomes aluminum in the final manufacturing. But here's the problem. When you convert bauxite into alumina, it produces gallium as a, as a, as a co-product of that. And I say a byproduct is waste, co-product is an actual useful product that has an economic purpose and becomes, so now you have a supply chain of gallium. When you look at gallium, it is, it is considered certainly by China, but also a lot of research in the US indicates it too, that it's really the super material of the future when it comes to semiconductor manufacturing. 
as well as applications for extreme temperature ranges or where you need to be able to push an awful lot of data or information uh, through that physical hardware. So now that China is the global superpower, now that China has pretty significant volume of control, certainly majority control of the world's resources of bauxite, that brings the United States and let's say Austria uh, or Jamaica into very clear uh, lines of mutual need where Jamaica's having a lot of, you know, Jamaica's having a lot of trouble with its bauxite uh, mining and extraction and, and export capabilities. Russia and China have historically been the, the dominant nations partnering with Jamaica on that. Well, Jamaica's now having some issues with that and there's an opportunity and, and companies have like New Day Aluminum have stepped in to help ease that in Jamaica. But then you've got Australia, which sits on, I believe it's the largest reserves in the world of bauxite. I could be wrong, but uh, certainly one of the preeminent bauxite manufacturing countries in the world. And quite literally, they're alone on an island with uh, China much closer to them. And, and Australia is going, you know, hey, we're, we're part of the Commonwealth. We're, we're part of this historically friendly, uh, long-term, you know, go down swinging together relationship with the United States. What is the United States going to do to help protect our interests in our own backyard? And how we respond to those challenges is a component of, you know, reshoring because these alliances, these relationships, these people that historically have been in our sphere of influence, we've got some real work to do in rebuilding those partnerships and relationships and commercial ties before we can definitively say, yeah, we can engage in reshoring of this or we can push back against China and Russia and Iran on that. Um, they've, they've really got us over a barrel on a number of things we absolutely have to have it. Uh, so far as I've seen, Valina, we don't really have a plan, uh, a viable plan of action rather to address all of those shortcomings and then, you know, step out and say, hey, we're ready to push back against the dragon bear. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned already two uh, concepts that I've developed, one being the bifurcation of the global system, which uh, evolves around maybe to explain for our viewers uh, who have heard it for the very first time, uh, mm -hmm. basically bifurcation of the global system means uh, Cold War 2.0 uh, that evolves around two centers of power. Of course, the one hegemonic power, the sole superpower with global power projections on the one hand, and of course, on the other hand, a rising second system of power around China and uh, you know its uh, partners and um, and alliance. So in a sense, we are already in this kind of situation. And here we see a very interesting new element with Russia's war on Ukraine. Uh, Russia basically um, preparing for the long game. That is a systemic competition between United States and China, seeking to position itself to upgrade, uh, to upgrade uh, its uh, positioning in this uh, systemic competition, obviously siding with China, what I call the dragon bear, namely a modus vivendi of systemic coordination between Beijing and Moscow in various key domains. So now I would like to go back to the Cold War when the West and Soviet Union, in fact, engaged out of necessity in trade across multiple commodities. It was the big trading houses who helped uh, mitigate some of the risks and make also the deals happen. They were able to do this due to close networks and information asymmetry. So basically meaning that the average person had no idea how it all worked. So given how transparent and interconnected the global 
uh, system and of course global markets are right now. What kind of entities do you think will emerge to perform similar roles in the future following the by far biggest isolation of Russia by the West mm. and also following the observations of the dragon bear? Yeah, that's, um, that's one of those things that, you know, we really only understood uh, in the West uh, after the fact, the, the role that some of these hidden hands were able to play in, um, and, and despite a lot of the outright illegal, very, uh, in some cases, unethical uh, behaviors of some of these private entities, uh, what, what you did see, though, is that they also played an essential role in arbitraging global risk. And what I mean is, is that when, when a country no longer has that last bit of currency to, uh, you know, put food in the stores for the people or to keep the water pumps running or to keep the lights on and the factories running, uh, you know, destabilization very quickly follows. And in the case of the Soviet Union, where sort of by, you know, attrition and, and by making war, they had, they had acquired an enormous amount of natural resources. And then of course the countries and governments that, um, uh, th that were there and they all became part of the Soviet Union, but they all sort of had their own like little, you know, ethnic identities and things. And so when you, when you roll all that together, if the Soviet Union hadn't been able to export its oil, uh, export its grains, uh, where it was producing grains and not having to import in a massive way, uh, it's metal products and things like that. It's weapons, which, you know, is a major export, of course, of the Soviet Union to the rest of the world. Um, if they hadn't been able to get that stuff out, you're talking about a regime that had, you know, that had atomic and then later nuclear capabilities. They possessed the nuclear triad, just like we did. And they would have had to, they would have been in a position where as scary as things were and, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis, as scary as things got here and there throughout that, that, that Cold War period, um, it's a virtual certainty that if Soviet Union hadn't been able to pay its bills internally and, and keep the lights on at home, so to speak, that destabilization would have followed and it would have been horrifically violent. Uh, as terrible as it was at some level, uh, certainly from an, an, an amoral perspective, not making a moral judgment on it, uh, some of the things that those trading houses did did help uh, keep the peace, even as, you know, they kind of made themselves fabulously rich and powerful in the process as this sort of intermediate world. The, those companies have evolved today into the Glencores of the world or Trafigura or Vital or Cargill, ADM. Um, but now what we're seeing, that, that business model is a byproduct of the capitalist West in a lot of ways. Like it's the wild West, as long as you're willing to take the risk, then the rewards can be absolutely enormous. Well, now under the, the, the dragon bear sort of sphere of influence, you've got a modified Soviet model happening here, but a more clever iteration of it, particularly in China. You know, it was, it was Deng who, you know, Chairman Deng who uh, in the late 70s and 80s recognized that um, hybridizing a little bit of some of the capitalist ideas with, with uh, you know, Maoist communist concepts could produce a more robust and powerful uh, uh, People's Republic of China. And, and that was the path that, that he put them on all the way back in the late 70s and early 80s and said, hey, we're going to have these, you know, five, six industries and, and, and sort of domains of expertise that over the next 50 years we want to become globally dominant in. And it's, you know, things like science and, and technology and agriculture. 
uh, material science was a big one as well. And, and they did that. And so then they became a, a, you know, a major ship manufacturer. And then they became sort of one of the building materials, you know, backbones of Eurasia, uh, even in the West as well. When we add all that together, what we see is, is that uh, Russia, who after the fall of the Soviet Union, all these companies privatized, but then the oligarchies built up around them. But now Russia is moving certainly back more towards a authoritarian and has for quite some time under Putin become more of an authoritarian where these companies, some state-owned, Rosneft and Gazprom and those, some not state-owned, uh, but very certainly due to the very tight and paranoid relationships that Putin has with his inner circle of oligarchs and you know, multi-billionaires, um, they know they either play ball according to the will of the state or they are not only going to lose their company, they're going to lose their company, they're going to lose their lives and probably their families' lives too. Um, and so you have this de facto domain of, uh, of companies that are, that are fundamentally state-owned uh, just out of, out of uh, ideological or, or fear of you know, blackmail and, and, and death. In China, it's, it's largely the same thing where we have, you have these you know, network of, of really hundreds of state-owned enterprises that are just absolutely massive. Um, you know, we talk about how big Cargill is and, and as a privately held company, nobody really knows exactly what their you know, revenues and profits are, but rumorous cargo makes about $60 billion a year, give or take, and let's say it's 50 to $60 billion a year. Kafka is bigger than that. You know, the China Oils and Feedstuffs Corporation, that's a state-owned enterprise and it's only one of the state-owned you know, agriculture processing enterprises. So there are multiple car kills and ADMs in China that are directly under the control of the state or de facto control of the state. And they do the will of the state explicitly because China has this doctrine of military civil fusion. So in the West, as, as, as governments, we have to almost arbitrage and barter with our own companies uh, that are listed on our stock exchanges that are domiciled in you know, Switzerland or in Germany or the UK or France or the US. And we have to convince these companies to do things that maybe are, are for the, the, the good of the nation or the good of the alliance, as opposed to the good of their bottom line. Uh, and the, this sort of emergent, hostile, adversarial, uh, very strong faction uh, of the, you know, that's falling up under the Dragon Bear model, uh, they don't have as many limitations like that. It's uh, do what we say or we will find someone who will. Um, and so that the, the will to power that the that NATO and the U.S. and the Anglosphere and all of these uh, countries that we're working with uh, as global partners, we have to find some way to more intelligently uh, and more ethically offer a better way forward for countries that are looking right now and going, you know, which, you know, which bully, you know, which bully do we hide behind against the other? Um, that brings us to the Russian Ukraine thing. Russia is, of course, the, the energy breadbasket, if you will, uh, in particular for Europe, which is obviously, you know, uh, the, the one that's closer to closer to the threat uh, of Russia and, and, you know, of China supporting some of these things. Uh, but Europe also has the weakness in this particular case of being dependent, highly dependent on Russian energy, uh, both from a crude oil standpoint, uh, as well as a refined petrochemical products and, and then natural gas, you know, probably most famously because of the pipelines. So Europe now has to arbitrage its own risk outside of the considerations of what is good for NATO, what is good for the EU at scale. Uh, you have countries that have been part of this commonwealth and this collective 
of nations that have cooperated fairly effectively for a long time. And now that some of these nations are going, mm, I don't know that what this bigger group wants to do necessarily is in my best interest. We're seeing that right now, of course, with Poland, probably most famously. Poland is making a lot of calculations and taking some actions with regard to the Russia-Ukraine conflict that may be cut against what other members of NATO or the EU would like them to do. But Poland has to do what's in Poland's best interest first as a country uh, and make sure they're still a functioning country before they can be an effective member of any sort of alliance. And so that's the geoeconomic and geopolitical risks that, that the rest of the world runs from the Russia-Ukraine thing is that it's now forcing countries to make decisions in ways that they haven't had to for a long time where they're making decisions by consensus of alliance rather than by simply what is best for our survival as a country. The other issue is that of the amount of manufactured product. Uh, you, you, a lot of people have never heard of Ukraine, but have no idea, uh, unless there's someone like me who's worked in agribusiness for a long time, or someone who works in the energy industry, uh, works in maritime shipping, how important that, that Northern Black Sea region is to the stability of supplies in the world of both food and energy. Uh, an enormous amount of energy product comes out of, of Russia, uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, its goal is to accelerate its own, you know, domestic energy capabilities for export and, and use domestically. Uh, but Ukraine is, is really the breadbasket of Eurasia, uh, far and away the most uh, uh, economically productive and, and, and productive in terms of just output of metric tons of, of, of uh, wheat and corn in particular, but other products too that they grow. So that all factors in as well to how does the disruption of that, if they can't get their spring wheat you know, out, or excuse me, if they can't get the winter wheat harvested, which is the bulk of the wheat produced in Ukraine, and, and then 10 to 20% in any given year of the, of the wheat output of Ukraine and Russia is gonna be the spring wheat that's planted now, as, as about when they would be going to the fields or maybe early to mid-April, a lot, they're saying, yeah, that's gonna, get, that, that's gonna get put in, that's gonna get it, but how is it going to get out? Are you gonna be floating barges of product uh, right alongside where major battles are taking place? Are, uh, are, are you gonna be railing and trucking product to the Black Sea ports like Odessa uh, and trying to get that product out at a time when at the very beginning of the war, uh, a Cargill ship, and Cargill's a US company, they're domiciled in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and one of a ship carrying their grain was trying to leave and, and, and took a missile on the side. It didn't sink the ship, it didn't kill anybody, but obviously would have damaged the vessel, damaged the cargoes. And that has that chilling effect of, is any of that product gonna actually move to market? No, it's, it's not. And Ukraine doesn't have the ability, Russia doesn't have the ability to store all of a, whatever crop comes out uh, and stockpile it until things calm down and they can export. So now China, who depends heavily on wheat and, and, uh, and corn from Ukraine and from Russia, uh, China's going, we're not gonna have this. Well, corn is an extremely important ingredient and as a bio-industrial product, it's not just for animal feed. It's not just for ethanol. There's, you know, a company like Cargill or ADM is going to make 20 or 30 different industrial and food ingredients out of a single bushel of corn. And so if that is not getting into the world market, then it's got to come from somewhere else. And that may have a stabilizing or destabilizing impact as well. So if what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, yeah, there's the ideology, ideological conflict of civilization happening here where a, a lot of people in the West are saying, no, Ukraine is a sovereign nation that wants to be separate from Russia. And it's been an invaded by a hostile authoritarian regime that's murdering people. 
and committing, you know, significant acts of, of, uh, of you, know, you know, crime, war crimes, uh, even after 20 years of gangster capitalism influencing uh, the corruption and, and, the, and the governance of Ukraine. So people look at it on an ideological line and say, hey, we need to step in and help Ukraine. Others are saying, mm, Ukraine's a very corrupt country. It, it has always sort of been a bit of a rump state for Russia in some ways. Uh, we shouldn't step in and help them. This is Putin and Ukraine's fight. And then you have people like me that we know there's no good answer. We know there's no easy answer. What we do know is that by and large, unless there's a full-scale intervention from NATO to help tip the scales, that this is going to be a conflict that at least for now is going to drag on through the year, is going to significantly disrupt liftings of, of, of crude, uh, you know, the shipment of natural gas, the ability to grow and harvest these cereal crops in the region and get them to the world. So if nothing else, the, the one certain response any of us have in this world is to say, what is the likely impact going to be to supplies? Where are backup supply is going to come from and who's going to step forward and pay that pretty penny to get a hold of those and, and do that. And what I can say for sure right now is, is that the West is talking a lot more about these issues than it's actually stepping up and doing something about them. And, and that I think for us, at least in the EU, uh, in countries that rely on humanitarian aid from, from our nations and in North America, we need to be doing more and more, you know, more and more quickly um, to mitigate some of these risks and uh, utilize food and energy as geo, you know, positive geoeconomic levers uh, against people that are trying to do some really awful things. Um, but at the same time, not penalize the people who are part, you know, who live in those countries who are also at risk uh, of significant disruption to energy, food, and water. Obviously, as you outlined perfectly, uh, the Black Sea as being the most important uh, global choke point for food supplies with the rail and the ports uh, is going to have a huge impact on food and energy security. Uh, as the French president already said, we should be prepared for a massive food crisis in the next two to three months. So it's already in the making, unfortunately, as you've also outlined, there are no actually alternatives or less alternatives to these missing supplies. And also I want to just add that uh, Russian president has already factored in commodities war on Europe uh, as a reaction of the severe sections that were sanctions that were imposed on Russia. So for instance, uh, he uh, blocked shipments of wet in the Black Sea ports, which of course uh, is, um, well, is directed uh, towards uh, Europe as uh, these uh, food and energy security issues will, will put an additional pressure on the European decision makers when we experience a similar Arab Spring scenario as in 2011. Uh, so basically, this kind of scenario has been already in the making. Now, I see that there are questions uh, coming from the audience. So I will uh, put some questions uh, uh, from the audience before we move uh, uh, forward. Um, there is a question 
related to the free trade agreement talks between the European Union and India. Uh, the European Union relaunched uh, its uh, free trade agreement uh, talks uh, with India after these um, negotiations were put on hold in 2013. So what is your view on uh, that matter? Should the European Union try to actually reconfigure uh, supply chains by engaging more with India. And same, I would say, uh, would apply for the US position, I would add to this. And also, there is a question about, um, well, about what your anticipation of uh, Russia's war in Ukraine uh, is um, given this uh, supply chain uh, change disruptions. So what is your assessment basically uh, on the risks arising from that? And then there is also a question about the phase two deal between China and the United States. Um, if you were to coordinate it, how would you craft it? That, that, yeah, that's an interesting one. It's sort of the if, uh, if I was king for a day question, right? Um, so to the question of the EU, uh, you know, moving ahead or, you know, uh, resurrecting uh, the, the idea of a, of a, you know, pretty wide ranging free trade agreement with India, um, I, I support it broadly. And, and I think the U.S. should as well be supporting that and be doing everything we can to similarly engage in, in bilateral and multilateral trade agreements that, that really put India at the heart of it. Um, India is for some a touchy subject because they see they understand the depth and length of ties that India has in particular with Russia. Um, uh, but, but even, and, and a lot of people don't understand that there is a pretty long-standing relationship uh, in terms of trade and infrastructure, uh, and even an Indian company operating a major container port in Iran between India and Iran. And, and these are real politic calculations that India has to make. Russia and China are the two dominant you know, countries in India's sphere of influence and, and in its world, right? And it's not the US. And Iran is right next door to India, has access to an awful lot of petrochemical materials. And so it does make sense that, that these deals have been made and continue to be a factor today. But what you'll see with India is I, I really believe that India uh, and Turkey to, to, to a certain extent as well, um, if, if uh, particularly if Erdogan can survive you know, maybe, maybe the next year uh, of issues that he's dealing with. But uh, India in particular is going to step, is already stepping forward and showing that they're going to play a major role uh, as, as Switzerland was in World War II, uh, as a sort of neutral regime that, that was helping, again, like the trade houses in the 70s and 80s in the Soviet Union era, uh, of arbitraging and mitigating certain levels of risk that could really spiral out of control. And I think India is going to be an important ally uh, and player in both spheres. I, I really do believe that. Uh, India is not going to uh, shed uh, its historical ties to Russia uh, as, as a uh, arms partner, as a trading partner, as a, um, you know, in particular on the issue of energy, where, where India has been one of the, really the two main countries other than China stepping forward and purchasing these Cargoes of much cheaper, you know, Ural's crude coming out of the Black Sea that are still shipping. Um, to, to the extent that you're seeing, you know, the the finalization, this news just came out this morning, but I've been saying it for a month. This is an obvious thing that's going to happen is you're going to see settlement, new settlement paradigms begin to emerge where 
uh, a ruble rupee swap or ruble rupee settlement or the ability to do uh, uh, you know, a trilateral ruble rupee wand swap, that kind of thing, uh, in order to facilitate these deals. And what comes of that, it's hard to say exactly what it's going to look like, but that is as clear indication as any that India is not going to just unilaterally follow sanctions and, and just decide, well, whatever historical ties we've got with these countries, we're just going to walk away from them uh, because the U.S. and the U.K. said so. Um, and, and that's fine. I understand that and I get that because India at the same time is also saying we're not picking sides here. We're doing what's in India's best interest to manage and all of this risk that's flowing around us. Uh, and, and so far, every indication is, is that they intend to play a very significant role in, you know, if you take the Venn, if you make a Venn diagram of, you know, there's the dragon bear, and then you have like sort of your Anglosphere, Three Seas Initiative Alliance, that little bit of overlap in the middle there, that's going to be India, particularly from a physical goods side, um, that's able to pull trade into and out of these two spheres back and forth by establishing itself in the middle. And I think you're going to see uh, probably the UAE, maybe to some extent Saudi Arabia, but certainly the United Arab Emirates is going to emerge, I think, as uh, you know, Dubai, you're going to see it, I think, continue, or they're at least positioning themselves to be uh, a foot in both worlds as a financial clearinghouse, what Switzerland used to be, what for some time Hong Kong was and London and New York were, you're going to see, I think, uh, a Dubai most likely step forward and take its place alongside your Singapore's and some of these others that um, are very, you know, already are, but will continue to become even more important uh, financial and legal hubs where the two spheres have the ability in some neutral way to interact without a great risk of conflict between them uh, economically. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm, in, I'm in favor of the EU doing everything it can to have a seat at the table. I'm in favor of the US doing the same thing it can to have a seat at India's table. And that way, at least we have a voice and we have a, you know, the, the billions of dollars in trade between our nations and India will help, if nothing else, somewhat neutralize and offset the billions of dollars in trade happening between India and other nations within the Dragon Bear. So uh, I'm in favor of that process moving forward, as long as it doesn't get super contentious and ugly, or as long as nobody's having to give away uh, such an enormous amount of, of future leverage that it's going to inevitably result in conflict anyway. Um, I, you know, I think that, that that does need to continue to happen. Um, I think the second question was, was what are some of maybe the, the, the longer term risks uh, of the Russia-Ukraine conflict? If that's, um, so fertilizer has become suddenly very famous as a, as a discussion point, particularly that of potash, um, you know, which Belarus and Russia are, are sort of the runaway producers in the world of that. Uh, but you've got a significant amount of that that's also made in, the, in Canada. Um, so in the U.S., we've got some ability to limit or mitigate the risk associated with the disruption to major fertilizers. Um, we're not fully self-sufficient. I've heard, you know, Peter Zihan and others use that talking point that the U.S. is totally fine uh, from a fertilizer standpoint. We're not totally fine from a fertilizer standpoint, uh, you know, for, from a, uh, um, you know, the, from an NPK standpoint or nitrogen, potassium and or nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium. You know, phosphates, we only, I think we only produce about 50 or 60% of our annual demand for phosphates. We have to get the rest from places like Morocco or Russia. Um, the Morocco-U.S. relations will continue to be very important for a lot of reasons in a bilateral and multilateral way, uh, but we'll continue to be able to get phosphorus from them. We understand that, we're, and, and that's why we're starting to see some movement, I think, from, from 
the various trade entities in the United States uh, at the governmental level to maybe walk back some of these more damaging anti-dumping and countervailing duties that uh, Mosaic and others argued to put on you know, Moroccan companies. So we're seeing that walk back a little bit because we know the importance. We produce a pretty significant amount of our own nitrogen, but we still do need foreign sources of nitrogen, particularly for things like liquid nitrogen, 28%, 32%, uh, urea, uh, which is a product that that China makes an awful lot of. So yeah, is it damaging that China and Russia have sort of collectively cut off a significant amount of fertilizer uh, in the short term? Yeah, it's damaging, but there is enough available to the U.S. from, from allied countries in our own production that um, if we are smart about it, it's going to be a one-year impact. Most of the fertilizer that's left the global marketplace if impacts supplies for this fall, post-harvest. Here in North America, we do almost all of our fertility in the fall. We put an awful lot of our MPK down post-harvest on average in the U.S. Um, as opposed to spring-applied fertilizers. So those supplies are already in the ground for us. We've got them last year. Um, I know in my own family, uh, on our farm, we booked fertilizer at, you know, $725, uh, you know, for nitrogen. And now it's close to $1,500 in some places. So we lock that in. That's our cost basis for the 2022 crop. It's the 2023 crop that, that these fertilizer supplies are going to have some impact on. I hate to say this because it's not good agronomic practice, but uh, most farmers overapply fertilizers to some extent and do have the ability to reduce uh, the amount of fertility put into their soil for one, maybe two years, depending, uh, and not see a, a real significant yield drag. Um, but if we're talking two years down the road, these fertilizer disruptions are still ongoing, then Canada is going to have to dramatically increase output. The U.S. is going to have to increase output of our own domestic supplies, and we're going to have to figure out how to deal with that. Um, so the food side, we're talking short-term shortages, uh, but I think the world will absorb enough that it won't spin everything into chaos as far as at, at the global scale. Um, energy is really the one I worry about. What is, well, frankly, what is the EU going to do f for natural gas? 10 to 15%, I'm, I don't, I'm not clear on the full number, it's 10 to 15% of all underground storage in, in the EU is owned by Gazprom. Most of the pipelines are owned and controlled by Gazprom. Um, a lot of the export capacity of Central Asia, uh, and really think about this, the Caspian Sea is, is, is an enormously productive region uh, for, you know, for petroenergy. And if you, if you want to get it out on water, the only way to get it out is the Don River. Well, now that Russia's first move was to gain total control over the Sea of Azov, that's the mouth of the Don River. So anything that's going to come out on water is going to come out now through unilaterally held Russian territory, which gives them some pretty significant influence. And now all of those pipelines and everything else is also now in, within the Russian sphere of influence. So you're not just talking a threat to Europe as well. You're talking about one country's ability to pretty quickly dislocate a significant chunk of the petroenergy production in the world. Um, so China will have to continue to monitor that as well. You're already seeing China today uh, announce that they're reducing some of their refinery output uh, for refined like gas products and jet fuel. And so the world's going to retract a little bit right now. Everybody's going to try to keep their powder dry and, and know for sure that they have, you know, given number of supplies at a price. Uh, but at some point, those inventorials will be eaten through and we we'll left with the question of what's next. So the real risk here is in the, the multidimensional ways in which individual actors 
in a very complex system may act irrationally or unexpectedly that can then have that sort of cascade effect on everybody else within the sphere. Uh, so I think the biggest risk is not a specific product shortage uh, or, or a specific um, outcome of the conflict. I think the real risk here is, is that there are a lot of people uh, making hidden and public risk assessments that impact an enormous, uh, you know, enormously complex system uh, in ways that probably none of us can predict beyond maybe a second or even a third order effect. So um, that's the thing I'm really watching is, is what are people actually doing? You know, it's, it's India can say, yeah, we'll, we'll do this, but they're still buying cargoes of Russian crude. That, that tells you everything you need to know. Uh, same for China, right? Same for the U.S. Um, so the, this decoupling, this, this bifurcation is happening. It is kinetic, as we're seeing in Russia and Ukraine, but um, it, it's violent as far as the system is concerned. It's forceful, uh, and I think it's inevitable. Um, the, the world 36 months from now is going to look so incredibly different from the world we inhabit today. It's, you know, it's like, you know, I don't, I, I don't believe Lenin said it. I think it's apocryphal, but you know, there's, there's weeks in which years happen and there's years in which weeks happen, that kind of thing. And, and, um, I, I certainly think that we're in that phase right now where the avalanche is on its way to the bottom, uh, but we're only halfway down the mountain and there's still an awful lot of things that could happen as a result of this, that maybe looking back, we're going to say, hey, yeah, I guess we should have seen that coming, but we didn't, or we couldn't have. Uh, then to the question, if I was king for a day, what would I do with a phase two trade deal? Uh, I'd tear up the phase one trade deal and start from scratch. Um, I know a few of the people who are uh, involved in some level, uh, even at the table during the discussions of the phase one deal with China. And what I can tell you is, is that if we had gotten the full meal deal that we initially said we wanted, uh, in the phase one deal, uh, China would be in a significantly weakened position. I, I don't think the tariffs was alone was the way to go. Um, but China does have weaknesses and dependencies as well that we, we at some level have the ability to influence supply of corn and soybean is one of them. Uh, Brazil is at great risk. Um, uh, they had a very dry season for their first crop of corn. Uh, now they're going to their Safrinha, which is their second planting, their winter planting which for us is our spring season, our, our, well, our main season. Uh, and now Brazil's going into their spring planning with what looks to be somewhat uh, disruptive dry weather as well for a second year in a row. Um, so if that's a free corn crop, that second corn crop uh, doesn't get made. Now you're talking about the one country that China really relies on other than, uh, other than Ukraine for supplies of cereals. Uh, that country is now uh, likely to run out, which means they're going to have to get it from us if they get it from anywhere, uh, for us being the United States. Um, so if I was king for a day, I'd be taking some of these levers and laying into them. I'd, do, I'd really do two things. To the extent that I'm willing personally, I guess, and if I was the, the trade representative at the table negotiating this, um, to the extent that I would be willing to conduct trade with China, it would be along the lines of things that China needs the most in exchange for very strong concessions. Um, but what I would also certainly do is make any deal, any deal conditional on um, participation of states at the state level or corporate entities in the deal. If you, if you want a seat at this table, if you want to conduct across these domains or these HS codes, you know, the harmonized tariff codes, uh, that we use to govern sanction and trade law and, and customs and all that. 
if you want to be an active participant in export products or import products under this trade deal with China for any of these product codes, I don't care where you're domiciled, if you're a US company, if you're a Cayman company, an Irish company, whatever it may be, if you want to be in the United States and participate in this, then there are certain things you're going to have to comply with. The biggest one would be is cooperation and zero defect commitment to uh, digging out the corrupted interests, corrupt foreign interests that operate inside the United States. Um, I'm, I'm dealing with this right now as I uh, you know, work to help the people of Grand Forks and, and people in North Dakota uh, push back and kill this deal uh, of Hufang Group coming into Grand Forks, right? Uh, it's bad for an awful lot of reasons that I've explicated elsewhere, so I won't get into it. But at the end of the day, that sort of thing, those, those kinds of projects that seem so obviously bad and silly to an average person going, what are you doing? Why would you allow this? The stakeholders at the top, the state level leaders, the governors, their commercial people, uh, the trade office people, the state legislators, and, and then the companies that stand to benefit from this you know, within the states, they're the ones that push these kinds of deals through. They're the weak sisters in the deal for the United States where they're the ones that are easy to target with promises of money, uh, promises of jobs and economic development. It's like, you know what, man, just look, look the other way on this one. It's fine. If this is the straw that breaks the camel's back, the U.S. has a lot bigger. Well, that attitude scaled across 50 states and scaled across the massive amount of interest that the U.S. has in the world. Everybody making that choice at this one, just this one time, just this one time, that adds up. And so could I say that I would target specific products for tariffs? No, I would structure things to achieve two ends. First is to achieve uh, and incentivize actual legitimate reshoring and rebuilding of supply chains from the raw material level all the way up to the manufacturing, refining, manufacturing, and final mile. That's number one. Any deal that if I was king for a day, I was negotiating would be premised around that as you know, precept number one. And number two is that active participation in anything covered under this trade deal, which would be pretty wide ranging by design. If you are at any level of stakeholder downstream of that, and you are participating in the American side of this deal, then you have to clean your own house out before you are ever allowed or people that are under your jurisdiction are ever allowed to export. So if I'm North Dakota, if I'm Governor Bergam, you know, if I'm sitting at the table and I've got Governor Bergam here and he's saying, hey, uh, we export a lot of product to China, my first response is gonna be, your state is eight up with Chinese influence. Your state is eight up with money from a country that has said they want to contribute to the, de to the decay and decline of the United States. You need to root those interests out and satisfy that they are completely out and decoupled from the state interests before you're allowed to export anything or participate in this deal at all. Um, that's where I think any trade deal that comes forward has to be oriented as much as solving our own problems here as it is at establishing some level of bilateral engagement or detente between us and China. In the meantime, more questions are coming in the chat room on China. Would you be available for three uh, more short questions uh, if your time yes, and I will give much allows it? Answers. <laughs> good, good, because I think these are also important questions and have uh, great relevance uh, for the topics that you have been discussing uh, for the last uh, hour. So first question is, does China's food stockpiling indicate 
Uh, it was told about Putin's invasion of Ukraine ahead of the event. I'm just reading the questions the way they were put. What, or was it, in fact, a pandemic response? And for those viewers who are not familiar, over the last several months, China basically has been stockpiling on commodities and also in advance or so ahead of Russia's war on Ukraine, China and Russia also made a deal on opening Chinese markets for the first time for Russian wet, and that means from all Russian regions, which was actually not the case prior to February 4th. So what is your take, Ross, on that? Yeah, I think, uh, so China's, China's stockpiling isn't just one factor. It's not just one reason. Um, initially, it was the fact that over 2017, 2018 into 2019, China got absolutely hammered with African swine fever uh, in its swine population. Uh, you know, I've heard I've heard the claim made made in some places that pork is like the only protein that China consumes. That's not true at all. Uh, by about a four to one ratio, pork uh, is is neck you know is biggest above chicken and poultry, which is the next biggest. So, you know, if if you know the average Chinese person takes in let's say 100 grams of protein per day. Uh, you know, something like 80% of that is going to be pork uh, and about 20% of that's probably going to be swine. Uh, there is beef, fish, uh, a lot of that consumed in the country, but as far as like staple protein, it's really pork and then chicken. But uh, annual issues with avian flu aside that they deal with, uh, certainly uh, ASF or African swine fever getting into the confinement buildings and it, it's a fire. Uh, it just sweeps through the entire population very quickly. Uh, and you have to uh, you have to cull basically the entire population, and make sure that that you would sanitize anything that leaves the property, tires of your truck, the boots of your shoes, your clothing, anything that was physically present on the property and could have come into contact with infected pork uh, or infected animals needs to be ideally destroyed. Uh, but it spreads, right? It can spread in the water. It can spread in the waste treatment. Uh, a lot of the Chinese confinement facilities are on farm. Uh, the pigs get sick. Maybe they cull the pigs, but all that wastewater that the pigs were, you know, urinating and defecating into gets into the river and then runs downstream. It gets into another confinement building for their water source. And all of a sudden it's there too. Uh, it's very, very hard to stop. So they lost 50 plus percent of their swine population over that time, which meant that they had to begin stockpiling other grains and stockpiling oil seeds and things like that. So that as they would bring those pig populations back online, they could produce the quantity of feed needed to get them up to, you know, get them up to size very quickly. Um, so that was part one was, um, you know, how do we reconstitute uh, uh, the, the meat supply, half the meat supply of the whole country uh, as it comes back online. And, and so they had to start stockpiling to do that. China also only is, I think it's total landmass is only about 8% arable, uh, meaning it could possibly be farmed, right? And that's pretty heavily concentrated in just about three regions. So from an oil seed and cereal crop standpoint, it's really kind of in the Northeast, uh, in the Jilin province and Heilongjiang and, and Liangang, uh, Inner Mongolia. Uh, and then, you know, and then along the Yangtze River right there, uh, you know, there, there's parts of the central part that, uh, uh, particularly for like soybeans and rice are, are very major breadbasket regions. So you've got a lot of this production happening in a small concentrated amount of regions. And one of those regions or both of them the last two years has experienced extremely intense flooding and destruction of crops. And so China has lied about its statistics, I mean, by a pretty significant level. So they normally do stockpile. It's, it's not to say China's forever hand to mouth. They, they make it a point. They have an enormous 
number of granaries across the nation where they stockpile things that can be kept for two or three years uh, in decent condition if you manage it right. And so China's always had a strategic stockpile of foodstuffs uh, and cereal crops and oil seeds. But what's happened is over the last uh, two years, you've seen them really eat into that for a number of reasons. And so they've had to replenish. That was part one of the stockpiling was replenishment. But at some point, when you look at the average feed demand of China, uh, its consumption rate, when you look at what its average production cycle was, at some point in early 2021, they tipped over into now they're stockpiling beyond their normal levels. Uh, they're stockpiling beyond their normal consumption rate. And what are they up to? And I started saying, you know, even in the early part of 2021, like, man, they are still buying more than they need. What is happening here? And as, as you got into the middle part of the year, it became really apparent that they were actually trying, they're attempting a physical corner of several commodities and not just feedstuffs, but they were doing the same thing with certain mineral products, uh, with certain energy and chemical products, uh, you know, certain intermediate chemicals or, or manufacturing, you know, materials. And so the stockpiling now became, what are they preparing for? It's almost like they're preparing to be cut off from their ability to import this stuff via trade lanes. And so the theory, you know, is very strong that um, they either knew that they were getting ready to do something potentially as China or that nation or nations that they conduct a significant amount of trade with for certain materials, things were getting ready to happen to them. Um, and so when we look back and we see that you started to see a, a real significant shift in terms of purchasing habits, the mechanisms and, and risk management procedures by which China purchases goods from Russia, uh, they switched all of that in November of last year. And we didn't start to really see the buildup on the borders until December, right? So if nothing else, it was 30 to 60 days ahead of time. Uh, they, they certainly had been tipped by Russian sellers and, and government officials that, hey, you know, these military exercises we're claiming to build up for may not just be that, there may be something else. So, uh, you know, we need to put some steps in place to mitigate risk for the buyers uh, as well, which, which they did. And that's where now it's obvious that China for quite some time has, has now gotten to a point where it put an awful lot of its, its hard currency, its capital that, that it controls from the trillion dollars of excess trade that the world did with China over the last couple of years of COVID because it could still manufacture everything. All of that went into basically a strategic stockpile financially to where they could start buying physical things that they could hold and utilize during a time period when, when normal supplies may be disrupted. So uh, do I feel like they knew the whole time? Probably not. Uh, do I feel like they certainly had months of advance warning that it, if not specifically what the order of battle was going to be, but certainly that there was going to be that the access to these goods were going to be significantly disrupted or cough. Totally. Yeah, I think they did. There is another question related to food security. What in your view is the long-term impact on food security of poor nations because of the severe economic sanctions on Russia, given the fact that a lot of African countries are in fact dependent on commodities supplies from Russia, not only from Ukraine, but also from Russia. So what is your view on that? In addition, I would like to ask you the question um, on your view on the Strait of Taiwan as actually one of the most important um, 
more or less uh, not just straight. Of course, Strait of Malacca is this global choke point for uh, oil supplies. But the Strait of Taiwan, if it's going to be blocked even for a day, given, for instance, a military escalation, a similar one like the one we are observing uh, along Ukraine, have been observing along Ukrainian borders since December, and we know what followed afterwards on February 24th. So do you think that this might be one of uh, the rational considerations against a military attack on Taiwan? Because in reality, if the Strait of Taiwan would be blocked even for a day, um, it will have immense impact on everyone. So basically the whole global system would uh, be completely uh, blocked. So this is a personal question from my side. And there is one final question that I will ask afterwards. And I promise that this will be then the final one. No, it's okay. Uh, so as far as so supplies of, of, uh, of food, uh, particularly in developing nations or what we used to call third world countries, um, when you look at places like Africa, the, the short-term impact is pretty significant as we're seeing. Sudan, for example, has already begun uh, seeing riots against uh, you know, the, the, the interim government that came to power. Uh, I believe it's a military, it's for like a military junta, but um, you're already seeing, you know, and, and it's not the first time they've had riots against the regime, but it's certainly uh, brought about by the fact that, that energy prices and uh, food prices in, in Sudan have been skyrocketing since the beginning of the, the Russian invasion uh, and, and the people have taken to the streets and said, you know, we want more capitalism, we want reform, we want the ability to uh, manage our risk maybe as people in a little bit better way. Um, and they're not saying it in quite that way, but that's essentially what they're asking for is, is they want a bigger stake, uh, a bigger seat at the table um, rather than just, you know, so, you know, subsistence living with very high prices on those basic commodities. Um, so short term, the, the impact is going to be pretty severe, but but the world does produce enough food. Um, it's going to have to, uh, it's, it's going to be probably a 12 to 24 month shaking out period uh, as new sources and supplies of fertilizer and product growth come online as new shipping routes uh, and relationships and, and you know, trade deals are transacted uh, emerge. Uh, but yeah, this shaking out period is going to be a little bit rough. We're going to see certainly extremely high food prices globally um, on, on average compared to what they have been historically or maybe the last 20, 30 years. Uh, certain regions that are very dependent on, uh, you know, supplies of humanitarian assistance and things like rice or wheat uh, or, or have essentially sole sourced their crops like Sudan, you know, sole sourced their uh, import of specific grains from, from one country or two countries. They're going to be hit worse, um, but overall, uh, overall, I think the world will adjust from a food and feed standpoint. Uh, but it's it's not going to be cheap. It's going to be very expensive for people to eat. Uh, you will see an impact in uh, in a few places, probably in mortality rate lifespan um, due to starvation or or the bigger issue is malnutrition, uh, not starvation totally, but malnutrition, just um, living too much on one thing because it's the only thing that country can get to eat. Um, you're certainly going to see that. And, and uh, those things are somewhat predictable based on who buys what from whom. Uh, and the West really needs to make that an emphasis of its humanitarian efforts is to look at those second and third order implications of the great geopolitical conflict and say, who are the people downstream at the ground level that are going to be hurt most? 
and what can we do to help ease that and, and help keep them fed and healthy. Uh, and even if it comes at some expense to ourselves, um, you know, we, we cannot be, we cannot be the kind of countries that engage in the same sort of predatory humanitarian aid that we see China doing, for example, uh, or predatory commercial partnerships. Um, we need to utilize our, our pretty significant bounty of blessings that we've got in the West to try to help these countries simply for their own merits to the extent that we can, rather than trying to use them as pawns and their hunger as pawns in a geopolitical game. Uh, so overall, I think it's going to work out, but it's certainly going to be a pretty uh, pretty difficult and chaotic 12 to 24 months as the world adjusts. Um, the Taiwan Strait question is really interesting. Uh, a lot of people for a long time, uh, particularly in the online right, have been saying China is 100% going to take Taiwan, and that means they're going to they're going to sail their vessels across the Taiwan Strait and block it. And uh, there's going to be this this just massive invasion of Taiwan. It's I I really don't think that that's going to happen. Um, Xi Jinping sees them as ethnically the same as him. He sees them as Chinese. He truly does. That's not a talking point. He genuinely believes that that Taiwan is, is, is Chinese and that the, the people of Taiwan belong to the mainland, uh, uh, you know, from an ethnical, uh, ethnic and cultural standpoint and a historical standpoint. So any sort of very uh, splashy, loud, uh, large scale type of invasion, A, China's not ready for that. Uh, as much as they've built their Navy forces up and as much as they've uh, built up their their sea lift capacity and things like that. They're still not advanced at that. And you know, in the in the U.S. and the U.K. and, and you know, we've had that over the shore capability and expertise for a long, long time. And so for us, it's not only do we have the assets, but we have the expertise and the training, and we've got the instruction manual on how to do it. And so we have the we would have the ability to do it. And so I think we're viewing China a little bit too much through our own lens. Well, they have the assets. Well, okay, maybe they have enough assets, but they don't have the training, they don't have the manpower and the resources, and more importantly, the cultural expertise inside their military to perform those types of over-the-shore operations, particularly in an environment when, A, Taiwan is not a paper tiger. It's for a small nation. Uh, it, it, it's got so, some fairly significant strengths militarily that it would take advantage of. Uh, not a huge fleet, of subsurface capabilities, but they've laid a lot of mines and they do have some submarines. Uh, they have an enormous stockpile of cruise missiles, for example. So to, to the extent that China may try to engage in something like that, that would be totally disruptive and shut the straight, uh, Taiwan straight down. I don't think they would do it. I think they know better, mainly because uh, A, they don't know how to do it uh, yet. They'll figure it out maybe eventually, but I don't think they want to, I don't think they want to prototype their, their strengths, uh, you know, or their capacity uh, against Taiwan. We may see them invade somewhere small and practice it that way, but um, but Taiwan also follows a porcupine defense strategy, right? That is a country that's layered, you know, layer after layer after layer of cruise missiles, uh, of anti-ship, anti-air capabilities, but they also do possess a capability to throw missiles into the air that can reach as far as the Three Gorges Dam, or certainly reach all of you know almost all of the major coastal cities uh, of China that are major commercial and industrial ports. Uh, and really cause some pain. So the, the, the vessels are being watched very, very closely. I don't see how China can mount any sort of uh, wide-scale capability, get across the strait before anybody woke up and realized what they were doing. They would take enormous losses, even in that short distance. Um, 
I do think that that reunification is Xi Jinping's number one goal. If he has to go the kinetic route, he will. I don't see him doing it before the uh, before the October uh, elections and the October you know uh, People's Congress. Um, I really think he he wants to be dictator for life. I think he wants to be in the same position Putin finds himself in in Russia uh, because he does have that 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 that, that hegemonic ambition that that. Uh, madman's desire to dominate and to rule with with a cult of personality. Um, uh, he certainly has that 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 Stalin, that Maoist, uh, that dictatorial impulse that the Kims have in, in North Korea. He's got that as well. Uh, but I think he's smarter than that too. Uh, and any 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 sort of uh, attempt to take Taiwan or forcefully unify Taiwan uh, that has the high risk of backfiring politically for him. Um, so I think if such were to happen, it would be after, it would be later at the end of this year and the next. The other, the other consideration is that if China does make a move on Taiwan at any time, whether it's now or later, mainly because of the threat of disruption to global commerce by a naval invasion and a blockade of, of the Strait of Taiwan, you're more likely to see um, targeted strikes from missiles to take out key infrastructure of Taiwan uh, disrupt airfields, take out their own, you know, anti-air batteries, things like that. Um, they don't. China doesn't have to have the ability to go uh, sea to shore with munitions. They they they've got an enormous array of options that they can launch from the mainland uh, because of the close proximity to Taiwan. So they don't even need to put their ships on the water to to be able to to start weakening the defenses of the island. What I think you're more likely to see is wide scale. Uh, cyber espionage, industrial espionage, where there is uh, sabotage on critical infrastructure, water systems, the power grid, uh, telecommunications capabilities, disrupting the undersea fiber cables that are kind of the data backbones of the world. Um, I, you know, you're going to see, I think, that as the as the predecessor, and you'll probably see a measured escalation of effort to to disrupt and degrade Taiwan's ability to call out for help, defend itself, whatever it may be. I think you're going to see those things happen before you ever see a full-scale invasion. So we'll have some canaries in the coal mine. Um, you know, my, my read is that that's what she would do if he was going to, is he's just going to keep escalating pressure uh, and putting so many straws on the camel's back until it breaks. Uh, if he doesn't do that, then certainly any sort of uh, blitzkrieg or lightning strike type scenario uh, against Taiwan would involve a significant cyber element and a significant airborne element and a significant um, uh, missile element before you would probably see a naval element uh, or an over-the-shore invasion of the island. Thank you, Ross. At least one good news uh, at the end of uh, our digital talk, given all sure. the bad news that we have covered for more than actually uh, 70 minutes. And I allow myself to ask you this final question, as yes. I think it's very much relevant also for your work. And the question says, the challenge of mobilizing Americans to the threats discussed uh, here seems like a PR issue. What can mm -hmm. everyday Americans do to share the information as discussed here with each other? To the extent that the social media and communications platforms are still uh, somewhat free, um, I I'm pretty free with a lot of the things that, that I say openly. Uh, 
you know, there is, there has been that significant chilling effect. There is obviously uh, a programmed in agenda right into the algorithms as far as uh, being able to disrupt or disintermediate people from communicating with one another sources of information that maybe don't push the correct narrative or facts uh, to, you know, to what the ruling class maybe thinks is good. But those, those platforms, there is still the ability to transmit that information. Um, the, the, the biggest thing Americans can do is that informed Americans, not Americans that get a hold of one fact and spin them into elaborate conspiracy theories or those who don't know how to maybe maintain their decorum and discipline when they're talking about these issues, but certainly in every community, there are people who are both very informed, who are articulate, who have the ability to sit down with people and say, hey, look, this is the way the world's going. And this is what we in our community at our smaller scope need to be prepared for potentially. And, and what do we need to do about this? What, what, what do we need to be doing on the city councils? What do we need to be doing in the city administrations? What do we need to be doing in the school boards and, and all of these different levels of society that we have in the United States and these blessings that we enjoy of community and open communication with one another. Uh, that's really, I think, where it starts. Um, there are available resources all over the internet uh, that, that are free from a lot of maybe the, the more conspiratorial type stuff that people can tap into and do their own research. Um, so my sense is, is share what you can through the mediums that are available. Um, be somewhat smart about the terminology that you use that, that could potentially flag automatic uh, uh, censorship mechanisms to take place or enable people to, to blow the whistle, so to speak, and get you, you know, you banned. Uh, but really do what you can and, and meet space, right? In physical space to, to be able to say, here's what's going on in Russia. Here's what's going on in China. Here's what's going on here, there, and everywhere. And here's how it's going to impact us. Um, the less, the less we rely on digital means of communication, the better. Um, because I think the censorship is not going to be reduced. I think not, I, I don't think Gab or Getter or any of these others are capable of becoming another Twitter. The environment, the information environment is different. The data environment is different. The political environment is very different uh, than when a Twitter and emerge, you know, and Facebook have emerged as these cultural open platforms. Um, they're no longer open, not really. Uh, and any alternative to those is going to, by the nature of the way platforms work, be a bit of an intellectual ghetto, an echo chamber, right? So people that are not allowed to speak in one area are going to tend to find and migrate to one, one other place, and it's going to become an echo chamber where that, that free and open dialogue that helps change minds and inform are probably not going to happen as much. And once they're there, they're going to be very easy to manipulate into certain ideas and thoughts and opinions and be radicalized. Um, so as much as possible, you want to keep that, keep that communication physical you know, between friends and family and within communities. Uh, find ways to use the tools that we have, or maybe watch for new tools to be innovative that allow us to connect those communities. Uh, but, but most importantly, for God's sakes, question everything. Everything is a narrative. Everything is an influence operation until proven otherwise, right? Um, so people need to understand that it's very easy to manipulate human behavior. And as the scale of manipulation increases, the ease actually, uh, it's easier to convince a thousand people like to create the tulip mania effect, right? It's easier to convince a thousand people of something insane than it is for that same person to be broadcast out and convince a thousand people of crazy things. It's harder for that person to sit down with an individual person or in a couple of three individual people and convince them of the same thing. Um, it, and so we have to assume 
with that, with that being axiomatic about human nature and our ability to be manipulated uh, from a communications and narrative standpoint, we do have to be aware that everything is narrative and be as, as vigilant as possible at seeking out fact uh, and, and trying to make pragmatic decisions on that. And, and certainly, I guess the last thing I would say is, is we probably individually all need to stop hoping for uh, a metaphorical messiah. Um, Obama was that for a lot of people in the United States, uh, the promise of hope and change and all of that. And he had this almost like messianic fervor with this campaign uh, in 2007 and 2008. And people thought this is the end of American history and the beginning of a bright new era. Well, as we saw, it really wasn't. And we, had, we saw the same thing with Trump in, in 2015, 2016 emerge where he was the, the great hope, right? For a lot of people that felt like things had been going off the rails and going in the wrong direction. And what we've seen is, is that it's almost been more of a cultural whiplash effect uh, because of the narrative machines. And so if we just sort of adopt the mentality that nobody's coming to save us, that we have to save ourselves and take care of our families and find other people that we like and we cooperate with, that action of trying to save the people we care about the most closest to home, I think is going to actually have the biggest impact at scale than trying to hope for a few candidates to emerge that are big voices and can change, uh, you, know, you know, that are a bit of a, a carpet bomb to the system. Um, we're going to have to be prepared to just grind this out and, and the better days will come eventually. They just may not be right now. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Valina's talk with Ross Kennedy on the disruption of global supply chains, organized and facilitated by Bharadvata podcast, one of India's leading podcast producers on politics, policy, and society. Thank you for listening and watching. Thank you, Ross, for Thank being you, with Valina. me over 90 minutes. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.